0: Well, Oregon's run defense was the strength of that unit a year ago, and it's their pass defense that needs to improve. But I think their run defense could be even better this year. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked on Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day, and your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. If you have not already, like, comment, subscribe, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show. Rate, review us as well on Apple Podcasts if you'd be so kind. We've got plenty to get to. Strength of the Pac-12, the Arizona State game, a little Oregon basketball later in in the show just a quick note on dana altman but we start with the run defense this year because that was the only real strength i i know the oregon state game happened it was a one-off but overall oregon's run defense last year was good enough for the unit as a whole to be really, really good. They allowed 125 rushing yards per game. That was fourth in the Pac-12. They're basically the same as UCLA. The top two were Utah and Oregon State who were both under 115 yards allowed per game. I believe that Oregon can get into that sort of range, right? Allowing under 120 rushing yards per game on the season I think would be outstanding, would show tangible progress and I even believe that that's possible given the personnel they have and the personnel that they have coming back on that side, especially when you factor in that. This is going to be year two of Dan Lanning and Tosh Lupoy. They've brought in a bunch of players and all that sort of good stuff. And by the way, I realize I just forgot that this episode is brought to you by Bird Dogs. Go to birddogs.com slash locked on college. And when you enter a promo code Locked On College, they'll throw in a free custom Bird Dogs Yeti style tumbler with every order. But I like where the defense is at from, from a run standpoint because I saw it a year ago and I thought it was really good. This all stems from a question from Matt, by the way. If you ever want to be a part of the mailbag, YouTube comments, Twitter at Smalls underscore 55 or at Locked on Ducks. You hop in there, shoot me a question, get it answered here on the show. Mailbag is absolutely chock full and I am here for it. It's making the summer months go by pretty quickly. I mean, June is you know, the first of the three official summer months. But the off season goes by a lot quicker when I have this stuff uh, to, to get me through because I love answering your guys' questions, engaging and all that sort of stuff. It's really fun for me. It seems to be fun for you as well. So let's keep it rolling. This is from Matt. Are we underrating our run defense as a possible weakness heading into 2023? Feels like there's less size and depth for interior defensive line and linebacker are we also not considering the impact Noah Sewell had on the run defense as well? So to your first point here, Matt, I disagree. I think the depth on the interior of the defensive line and at the edge positions is going to be stronger than it was a season ago. You lose DJ Johnson, who was a third round NFL draft pick and was certainly you know, a physical specimen, the likes of which you'd like to have at that spot all the time. But you have replaced him and Braden Swinson as kind of the other edge pieces there with Mateo Uyangalele, who I think looks great and I'm super excited for, and Jordan Burch. And then you have Mace Funa back from last year's team as well. Experienced guy, Holiday Bowl MVP. Hopefully he can capitalize on on that momentum and you know play that way throughout the course of the season but he's been you know like a really really solid player for the Ducks the last several years and he's in that defensive line group but I think if you're talking about the interior of the defensive line Oregon is deeper this year than they were a season ago and when I think about how a defense generally is going to stack up stopping the run I'm looking at interior defensive linemen and linebackers. Doesn't mean that corners, safeties, and edge players don't factor into it, but if you're talking about what's primarily driving the bus for whether or not you're successful in that area of your defense, to me, the answer is interior defensive linemen who can get penetration, swallow up double teams, and linebackers who come up, fill holes, and make plays in the backfield. But the interior of the defensive line is getting not just a huge returner in Brandon Dorless, who I think is going to play more on the interior than he did a year ago. I really feel like he's somebody who lined up at the edge position because Oregon didn't have other serviceable options out there. And Dorless can be good, but he's not a pure edge player. When he goes to the NFL, and I think he'll be a solid player there, he will primarily play on the interior. You can line him up on the outside, right? That's part of his draft scouting profile I was looking at the other day. I think he's most effective with his hand movement and his size and his ability to to rip around guards. Um, I, I think that his array of kind of pass and, you know, run moves to get around those sorts of guys is really, really most effective on the interior. So if he's in there and then you bring back Popo Amovai, who was a first team All-Pac 12 guy a couple of years ago. Now, you don't know what he's going to be entirely coming off of the injury, but I really feel that if those are your top two, and then your next two are Casey Rogers and Sam Taimani. To me, that is a stronger four interior defensive linemen, or a group of four interior defensive linemen, right? Which would be the two deep because it's four, two, five, two interior, and they, you know, mix up personnel and whatnot. But just talking about base personnel here two defensive tackles, two edge players, and two linebackers up front. Last year, your four guys were Dorliss sometimes, but really it was Casey Rogers and Jordan Riley, and Dorliss was at the edge spot, and Mace Funa was at the other edge spot. And then you had Sam Timani, guys like Keon Ware-Hudson, maybe Jake Shipley every now and then. I think he played more uh, at the edge position. But when I look at the group we have this year, and obviously there are a couple holdovers with Dorliss and Casey Rogers, I think adding Popo into the mix and having Taimani maybe be the fourth guy who was a a solid run stuffer, not a big pass rusher, but a solid run stuffer last year, I think you're deeper up front there. Because Casey Rogers, super disruptive, right? Had some moments last year where he got moved around a bit, but when he made an impact play, I mean, go look at, remember the Utah game? The best defensive performance Oregon had all season long for four quarters Casey Rogers was at the middle of everything Oregon was doing well in that game because he was single-handedly sometimes disrupting Utah's running attack, which is the foundation for their offense. So I like that Casey Rogers is there and I think, you know, Rogers could be the number one alongside Dorless. Popo and Taimani might be your number two, but regardless, you put Popo back into the mix with Dorless and Rodgers, I think you're actually stronger up front. Now, the linebacker position is interesting though because you don't have a returner from last year outside of Jeff Bassa who, according to PFF, really struggled, right? And I think that our you know, observations as fans and the eye tests with him kind of told that story as well, that he really struggled. He's bulked up a bit. I am still high on his upside because he has sideline to sideline speed. And though he hasn't flashed it as often as we would maybe like to have seen him done to this point when he makes an impact play to me he is one of those guys where it looks different right some guys may i think brian addison falls into this conversation Dorless falls into their category Dorless falls into that category and i think right now amongst the returners bossa is the other one where they have that explosiveness that speed that twitchiness that it factor I am a Jeffrey Bossa fan, even though PFF said he really struggled a year ago, and he certainly did. But you get year two in a defensive system, you get him another offseason to bulk up, and he still looks to have, based on what we saw in the spring game, that core speed that made him a four-star prospect coming out of high school. So you have him as kind of your, your most important returner. But then the rest of the linebackers, I think factor in, in a positive way and bird dogs can factor into your summer in a positive way if you go check them out because they make you look good they make you feel good and they make you do whatever you want that is a good time because their versatility is perhaps their best quality bird dog stretch khaki shorts are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg giving you a truly sculpted look bird dog shorts do the exact same thing as lululemon but they fit Way better. You can wear them on the golf course. You could wear them at the pool. You could wear them at the lake. Wear them on a hike, on a walk, just hanging out in the backyard, at a barbecue, whatever you want. Go get your next pair. Go to birddogs.com slash lockedoncollege. Enter promo code lockedoncollege for a free Yeti-style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com slash lockedoncollege for a free Yeti-style tumbler. You won't want to take your bird dogs off, so go get them and chill and have a fantastic summer all right there we go we've got our second segment sip that way we don't get dry mouth we don't get a sore throat and we give you the best product possible and i appreciate all of you out there being tuned in so moving to the linebackers here and kind of how they factor in to oregon's run defense i think when you look at you know what bossa could do he definitely needs to make that jump but Justin Jacobs is a guy who's kind of like Justin Flo. You know, you don't really know what he is because he hasn't hit his potential because of injuries at this point in his career. But that's the sort of guy that you bring in, I think, to be a starter right away. And I think if those are your top two, and then you're rotating in a guy like Jamal Hill, who I'm excited about, and then you have Connor Swelly coming over from Arizona State. You have Devin Jackson, who might be ready to contribute as a young player on this defense. I think you have a mix of speed and depth there that is sufficient to allow the linebackers to produce at least the way they did a year ago. Because think about it like this. Your two primary linebackers last year were Noah Sewell and Jeffrey Bassa. Do we think Jeffrey Bassa is going to be a worse player this year than he was last year? No. So that means at least one spot for our two our two starting linebackers, I can reasonably expect there to be greater overall production and high-impact playmaking. Now, at the other spot, Noah Sewell, to the to the next part of your question, Matt, he's tough to replace. And I know people were disappointed with him a year ago, might have been battling an injury from time to time. And guess what? He was still second team all Pac-12. Now, that is a tough thing to replace because he was a productive guy, he was a leader on the defense. He's an impact player, was a really, really good pass rusher. But last year... You know actually did like solidly but not as well as I think I'd expect them to defending the run so if you have Justin Jacobs in there and you have Jamal Hill in there who I I am really excited to watch Jamal Hill you know one one thing I would watch for at the linebacker position I I wouldn't be shocked if the first two linebackers. I'd be shocked if Jeff Bossa isn't a huge player on that defense this year I would not be shocked if the first two linebackers to take the field come September 2nd, which is getting closer, by the way, against Portland State are Justin Jacobs and Jamal Hill. Would, would not surprise me. I'm not predicting it. I'm just saying if that happens, I'd go, yeah, I could see it. I was really, really impressed with Jamal Hill, who himself is an experienced guy. Now he's learning a new position. but you know, his football instincts, his ability to tackle and cover. He's not learning all that sort of stuff, right? Like Devin Jackson, who, who's upside, I'm really, really high on because of his speed. That's somebody who still has to learn coverage assignments, who has to learn gap discipline a little bit more, or, you know, what his best pass rushing moves are, or, you know, like, there are a number of things he's got to learn. Jamal Hill doesn't have to learn any of that, and he and he's huge. I mean, he is bulked up in a big way. so. I think that that group has got enough depth to at least be as productive as they were a season ago. And remember this, your three most played linebackers last year were Noah Sewell, who graded well, according to PFF, Jeffrey Bossa, who did not, who I expect to be better, and Justin Flo, who graded even worse than Jeffrey Bossa, who who did not know... Where he was supposed to be at any point in time, he was just a heat-seeking missile looking for the football. But he missed assignments regularly, and that's why he wasn't able to see the field as much, and now he's off at Arizona. So when I think about the prospect of having Jamal Hill in there as kind of your your top three linebacker, as one of your top three linebackers, along with Bossa and Jacobs, I think the production could be there. Match that with a deeper defensive line, and this a long-winded way, as usual, of me saying, I think Oregon's run defense can be at least as good, but frankly, I think they can be better, especially with the defensive line. And it's not just about those positions, right? The other two spots on the defensive line matter as well. And I think you're much deeper at edge with Jordan Birch, Mateo Uyangalule, and Mace Funa as your, you know, top three edge players there. I think that is deeper than a top three of Mace Funa, DJ Johnson, and Braden Swinson than a year ago. And I think it's more talented as well. So I feel like that's a good place for Oregon to be. We'll see what happens with the corners. I mean, with the Nico Reed edition from Colorado, which is, has kind of flown under the radar a little bit. So many different ways the secondary could play it. We could see a bunch of guys. The, the only guy that I feel confident in starting for the cornerbacks is TriQuest. and even him, I would. I I don't think there's a one hundred percent lock anywhere. On that defense, I think Triquez is as close to it as you can get. But who the nickel corner is, who the opposite field corner is from Triquez, I don't know. I, I there are a lot of different ways that, that that could go. But in terms of the front six, you know, typically the front seven, but in a four two five, and 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 by the way, Taishim Johnson, a guy who's made a lot of plays around the line of scrimmage in his career as a nickel safety, I, I think that those those players put together should be able to give you as much if not better production defending the run than a season ago. But great question. Oh, and then the last thing, are we not considering the impact Noah Sewell had on the run defense as well? I, I, I've kind of talked about this and how, how they can replace him there. I do think his loss will be felt but I just feel that the steps forward other players can make can offset a potential drop off of not having a second team all conference caliber linebacker there. That's that that's just kind of my my gut feeling right now. But as always, let me know what you're all thinking. Hit me up on the YouTube comments or on Twitter at Smalls underscore fifty five or at LockedOnDucks. Ducks. Next one here from Nine Finger Jack. With Oregon having the same projected wins as Florida State and Florida State having a higher percentage to win the natty, can we finally put to bed that the pack is weak? I think the words of the narrative in there, that the pack is weak, is missing, but that's okay. The ACC is so bad that they have to try to pump up a team that will maybe get nine wins. Well, they've got Florida State. They've also got Clemson in there, and I think those are both good programs at the moment and look like they could be good teams this year you never know how stuff is going to play out that's why we play the games but the whole notion that the pac-12 is not very strong i think i think deserves some context or needs some context on that front because the league is going to be as entertaining it it is one one heck of a swan song one heck of a send-off because It is going to be as entertaining of a year as I can remember. You have top 25 teams up and down the conference. You have good teams that are not going to be top 25 teams. Washington State, Colorado, and Cal, who I'm higher on than most, are probably not going to be top 25 teams at any point this year. The Washington State plays Wisconsin in week two. Watch for that game. They beat them last year in Madison. If they do so again in Pullman, Washington State in all likelihood will be a ranked team at one point in time. And you could, I'm just saying, you could see seven teams from the Pac-12 uh, ranked if other things play out a certain way. It's a realistic world. But anyway, they finished last year with half the conference inside the top 25. USC, Washington, Utah, Oregon, Oregon State, UCLA, all six, I think will be in the top 25 this year. I would not put UCLA in that mix just because they have a lot of quarterback questions to answer. But the depth of the conference is really, really good. I actually think from, you know, most media outlets and and, and major pundits I've seen, everybody understands that. I think everybody's looking at the Pac-12 saying this is going to be one heck of a year. But here's the context that I feel that that conversation deserves. I do not expect a Pac-12 team to get into the college football playoff this year. It doesn't mean there aren't teams good enough to make the playoff. Oregon at their best was good enough to make the playoff a year ago. I think they are again this year. USC at their best can make the playoff. Utah at their best could make the playoff Washington at their best could make the playoff UCLA and Oregon State who also have win totals of eight and a half maybe but I need to see a couple things first before I could get aboard that train but it's feasible right so those are kind of your six conference contenders and if any one of them has a one loss season they'll probably find themselves in the four-team college football playoff this year but what the Pac-12 has kind of overlooks what it lacks They have a bunch of really good teams. They have a depth of really good teams. It's going to make for a great product, but they don't have a dominant team. That is what the conference is missing. And you could make the argument that USC Washington or Oregon could be a dominant team if the chips fall the right way this year. I don't see that being the case. My best guess right now, barring a lot of changes or injuries or something is the Pac-12 does what it has always done and that's in a nine team or in a nine game conference schedule, cannibalize itself to stay out of the college football playoff because I think all of those teams are really good, but I don't think there's a dominant team in there. And that's usually what you need in the four team era or the 14 playoff era. That's what you need to get in there, is a team that is either having it all go their way, like TCU, or a dominant team. There have been very few teams, I, I think, that have gotten into the playoff that you look back and say, ah, they were good, but they weren't that good. You know, Ohio State got in a year ago. They were 11-1. and one. That's a dominant team. Michigan got in a year ago. They were 13-0. and 0. It's a dominant team. TCU was 12-1. and one. They weren't dominant per se, but they were dominant with regards to their season. I could see a Pac-12 school doing that, having a TCU-type season, but the Georgias, the Alabamas, LSUs of the world that we've seen come through the playoff, the Clemsons as well, who have been in there and have just kind of been in the college football playoff hunt from the season's outset and then ended up making it in. I think they've all been dominant teams, and I, I don't think the Pac-12 has one that is so far above another that we could see that play out. It's going to be an awesome season. I mean, we're going to have big games, big stages, great quarterback play, big coaching names. Last year, the conference for, you know, as as, as we know it at this point in time, I think it's all wildly, wildly entertaining stuff. But... I think the narrative around the Pac-12 right now is correct. Generally speaking, from you know my uh, consumption of, of other media outlets and people who talk about college football, it's been that the Pac-12 is really, really good, but are they going to be able to get a team in the playoff? kind of seems like there are too many good teams out there, but it should be the most competitive conference in the country if you're talking about a conference championship because they do have the most teams with an over-under preseason win duel according to FanDuel of at least eight games of anybody in the country. That includes the Big Ten and the SEC. The Big Ten and the SEC, and and this is the difference. Those conferences have dominant teams and programs right now. The Pac-12 has a bunch of really good ones. That's why we haven't been able to get uh, a team into the playoff as a conference. But great question there. Uh, Next one from the Brewing PNW Adventurer. Boy, that is a I love that name. He says, hey, Spencer. That's me. How big of a game will this next year's game against ASU be, do you think? Could this potentially become a new rivalry between the two teams through the past history Dillingham has with the Ducks? Keep up the awesome show and go Ducks. So this year, I think the stakes, it's going to be like 2019. ASU is in a rebuilding phase. They weren't necessarily in 2019 because Herm Edwards had been there already, but this year arizona state is working to kind of rebuild they might be asking quarterback questions because we play them later in the season right it's in november so that's going to be a time where i'm wondering right now for asu is drew pine the starter still or are they moving on to Jaden rashada the four-star freshman and trying to develop him like we did with justin herbert in 2016. so i think whether or not there are big stakes in that individual game will depend entirely on the Ducks, right? At that point, let me pull up Oregon's schedule real quick. At that point in time, right, that is game number 11 in the season. So we will have 10 games under our belt. We'll be off the big home game showdown with USC at Austin Stadium. So are we going into that game 9-1 and one, like we did in 2019? Are we going into that game 7-3? and three? Are we going into that game six and four? Are we going into that game eight and two? I don't know, right? Are we still alive for a playoff spot? Won't know. So I think for this year's game, it'll depend on Oregon in terms of how big it'll feel. As to the rivalry component, I don't expect it to be too much. I, I We've seen, it, you know, Kirby Smart went to Georgia. Does it feel like Alabama and Georgia have like a huge heated rivalry? No, like there's, you know, maybe a little bit more interest and intrigue because, if, you know, Lanning, uh, if, if Lanning wins his first four against uh, Kenny Dillingham, it'll be kind of like what's happened at Georgia where people say, oh, well, is Kirby Smart ever going to beat Nick Saban? But I don't get the sense that, you know, you can't manufacture a rivalry. You just can't. You know, the Pac-12 for a long time, because Colorado and Utah joined together, they've tried to kind of bill it as that. It's never materialized, right? Utah's actual mountain time zone rival is BYU. That's a rivalry game. And I don't think there's enough animosity that could form between now or really in the next several years between Oregon and Arizona State. It's just a game that you want to win because you want to win every single game, of course. But I don't don't see that developing into, you know, oh, man, we want to stick it to Dillingham or uh, Lanning just wants to absolutely take it to his old OC and say, screw you for leaving. I, I don't think there's anything like that. Every coach in the industry understands that movement is a part of it, and I doubt Lanning brought Dillingham over to be his OC without thinking in the back of his mind. This guy's 32 years old. He's about to be an offensive coordinator. He's probably going to want to be a head coach one day. Heck, I, I bet you he's thought that about Will Stein, and we might have to talk about that one day on the show. But I don't I don't think that that's you know becoming anything, and I I don't think barring you know, something happening in the game this year that that it ever really could. Wanted to close with a quick basketball thing there, because I know that some Oregon basketball fans out there are not particularly high on Dana Altman. I, I'm not in that camp, though I do think there is some level of uh, pressure on him this year to get back to the NCAA tournament, given the talented team that he does have. But for anyone who is of the belief that, that Dana Altman has you know, slow... I just realized that our football and men's basketball coaches' first names start with the, st- the same three letters. Anyway, that's that's what we talk about here on this show. But uh, we also like talking about whether or not, you know, Altman appears to still have kind of the chops, the ability to compete in this, uh, you know, new world of college basketball. The answer continues to be yes, he does. Because... You look at the recruits that they've brought in this year, Jackson Shellstad, Mookie Cook, KJ Evans, a trio of five stars. It's a high-level recruiting class. And according to 24-7 High School Sports, separate from 24-7 Sports, uh, they're they're their own entity and whatnot, they said that uh, 2024 five-star Cam Scott took an official visit to Oregon and Dana Altman last, last weekend, per his Instagram. Scott is an athletic wing prospect with good bounce and burst and an excellent feel for the game. He was named as the co-MVP of the Pangos All-American camp yesterday. He's the number 20 overall recruit in the 2024 cycle. So... The, the, this whole idea that, you know, the game is kind of passing Dana by, I don't see that playing out. You know, just because he doesn't have a high-flying offense doesn't mean that he doesn't still have the schematics. And, like, th- there are there are questions to be asked on that front. But after back-to-back disappointing seasons, Dane Altman is still able to go out there. And his name and the brand of Oregon basketball that he himself has established still carries a lot of weight. A a lot of ways because they got the three guys this year and they're still getting visits from these sorts of guys and they're in the mix for those sorts of guys. And look, does it need to translate to on court results? Yes, it does. Absolutely. I'm not here to argue against that. I don't think Dana would come on here and argue against that. But if you're frustrated with him and think, oh, I think he's losing his touch and such from a recruiting standpoint. That's not the case. And we know recruiting is more than half the battle in college sports. And Dana still being able to do that should instill some confidence in Oregon fans that he still has plenty left in the tank at this point in time. I do think, however, conversations could be had, not necessarily would be, but could be had if he misses the NCAA tournament again this year. That was a nice, tight, clean, jam-packed show. Felt good about that one. Hope you enjoyed it. Appreciate everyone listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Back with you tomorrow. And until then, go Ducks.